Hello and welcome to the Ethics in Action podcast. I am your guest host, Alex Stubbs, a philosopher and postdoctoral fellow at the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. This podcast is part of a mini-series on the future of work, guest hosted by myself and James Hughes, executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and a bioethicist and sociologist who serves as the associate provost for institutional research, assessment, and planning for the University of Massachusetts, Boston. In this series, we'll dive deep into some of the most pressing topics of our time regarding work, the influence of automation on the future of work, the appeal and purpose of work, its connection to meaningful living, the harms of the work ethic, and the idea of a shortened work week. We'll also tackle the issue of alienation in the workplace and discuss innovative policy proposals that could help us navigate the ever-changing landscape of 21st century work. We're happy to have you join us on the Ethics in Action podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome again to the Ethics in Action podcast. Today, we're very happy to be joined by Gavin Mueller, who is an assistant professor of new media and digital culture in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Amsterdam, and is also the author of Media Piracy in the Cultural Economy and our topic of uh, today's discussion, the book Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Are Right About Why You Hate Your Job. Um, which is is an excellent book, and we're very excited to be talking about it today. So thanks for joining us today, Gavin. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So I think the best place for us to start is talking about the Luddites themselves, um, since the the general thrust of your book is essentially sort of a, a reassertion in many ways of the Luddites project. Um, so let's start with who were the Luddites and what was their their general political project? Yeah, so the Luddites were uh, textile workers uh, in the early decades of the 19th century in England. Uh, and uh, they took up the name of uh, followers of uh, this kind of mythical uh, uh, Ned Ludd or King Ludd, who uh, was, uh, there was a sort of mythos around this guy of uh, someone who would, uh, they, 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 he was uh, a kind of like a Robin Hood figure in the the in early Industrial Revolution, uh, and the Luddites sort of rallied around this as a as a way of uh, forming a collective identity uh, in their struggles against uh, the imposition of new technologies that would completely uh, upend and and reconfigure uh, the textile industry. Uh, so there were these new machines uh, that were making certain aspects of the the uh, weaving process um, de-skilled. Uh, that, that is to say it was easier to do, but it was also quite uh, much lower quality. Uh, and so what this enabled uh, uh, business owners to do, uh, if they could uh, get some of these new machines, is they could have workers who, rather than coming up through the guild system, rather than um, agreeing to certain standards of the guild as far as quality and pay, uh, what could be uh, uh, unskilled, in fact, were often children uh, and uh, subject to sort of the brutal factory uh, conditions of the early 19th century. The Luddites organized themselves against these, the imposition of the new machines in, in 
the aim of preserving the trade as it existed. So there's a there's a kind of a notion, right, that the if you're a luddite, you're you're kind of opposed to technology. You're like, uh, oh, I you know I don't I hate using a smartphone or something like that. The, the the luddites were not quite technophobes in this sort of like knee jerk sense, right? Technology was what they what they understood was technology was the way that their livelihoods were going to be undermined. Uh, and so they fought back and they fought back in a few different ways. Uh, most famously, they would break into factories on these raids and smash the machines of, of uh, uh, factory owners who, who didn't agree to to their terms. But that was not their first uh, first recourse. In fact, they 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 started out by saying, well, the law is on our side. Uh, we have a charter uh, from from the king that says we control the textile trade. These factory owners with their new machines that we didn't agree to, they're breaking the law. So, you know, let, let's, you know, work this out. We have the law on our side. However, the, the crown did not really pay any attention to them, uh, did not listen to them, did not do anything to prevent um, the these new machines from being used. So then they had to take things into their own hands organizing a kind of clandestine move, movement uh, because uh, any forms of unionization at the time were strictly illegal. Um, uh, there were these combination acts that were assertive meant to both uh, crack down on sort of anti-government conspiracies, but also extended to these kind of new forms of worker organizing at the time um, as, as an industry was, was developing. Um, and so they, you know, they, the next step was, OK, well, let's take it to the factory owners. And they said, look, uh, you know, pretty, pretty directly, like, stop using these machines or you can use these machines, but you still have to operate by by the rules that we operate. You have to have our standards of quality. You have to go by our pay rates. And if you do that, OK, we're, we're everyone's fine with it, one another. If you don't, well, then we move to the next step. Right. Um, and uh, so there were cases, right, where factory owners would say, okay, you know, you, you have it your way. We'll, we'll do it. Your, we're, we're intimidated. Uh, but there were also many cases where they said, no, we're going to fight you. And so this is where these kind of, uh, uh, you know, prolonged episodes of machine breaking would break out. Uh, some of them lasted months at a time, right? Uh, and until uh, the crown actually did pay attention uh, and said, wow, things are really getting out of control here. Um, and they sent thousands of soldiers in to sort of quell this this rebellion, which was taking on, you know, was was moving from a kind of very constrained sort of labor struggle into a sort of uh, more sort of social upheaval. Uh, and so the the Luddites, after uh, some, some kind of remarkable sort of solidarities, refusing to inform on people, uh, refusing to talk to the authorities or help their investigations in any ways, eventually were, were brutally crushed. Uh, and so from then on, uh, we tend to remember them as engaged in this kind of like pointless rebellion against the Industrial Revolution. How could you stop this progress, right? It's bigger than any person. It's bigger than any group. This is just, you know, the the, the throes of history and you have to kind of just uh, respect that. Um, and so the project of the book was to say, well, I, I, you know, I don't think this is actually a very good way um, to understand history, to to have a form a relationship to history of uh, whatever happened was inevitable, right? Um, so, uh, and I think there's actually quite a lot that we can learn uh, from the Luddites because I think we are also in a living through a moment where technology is dramatically reconfiguring work uh, in some ways that are you know uh, 
surprisingly, or uh, uh, you know, uh, similar to things that the Luddites were facing. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, and I, I think you know, your I take it that your project really, in many ways, is it's not only a response to the emergence of technology that you know, in many ways, has shows us a kind of potential promise of a, of a liberated future, but also I think in response um, to you know, who you classify as sort of the full automation theorists, right? The socialist theorists who, who imagine a kind of liberatory future where, you know, uh, amidst uh, an economy that is fully automated, we're allowed to kind of flourish beyond, beyond work, right? And so I think you know, your, your book is particularly a response to those kinds of positions. Um, do you want to say something in particular about those positions, why you find those those possibilities potentially problematic? Sure. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is a very a book that's very much oriented around sort of uh, debates on the future of work that are happening in particular among kind of socialist left that sort of um, emerged in the past decade or so. Uh, and you have a sort of um, what at one point was called a kind of accelerationist perspective, which is the idea that, you know, technology is continuing to develop. Um, and it it's sort of creating all these new possibilities. And our goal as, as radicals is to sort of apprehend these developments and sort of ride them into the future, right? Um, and and this is uh, not something that developed, uh, you know, in the in, in recent history. This is actually uh, uh, how uh, Marxist theory was understood and applied in workers' movements uh, from from uh, the earliest attempts to do so. As this is one thing I talk about in my book, the idea that look, like technology just keeps developing; it develops in this particular way. We need to, and it, and in through this development, it creates potentials for, uh, it creates the conditions for socialism, right? Um, and I thought that um, this was uh, quite a simplified way of understanding technology. Um, that in many cases, technologies develop precisely to undermine. Uh, the possibilities for uh, sort of egalit more egalitarian world of work or more egalitarian economy, that technologies are used to undermine uh, worker organizing, right? Sort of the basic building block of, of sort of socialist politics. Uh, and so this kind of provoked me to um, return to both sort of classics of Marxist theory, uh, uh, including Marx himself, um, as well as investigate the politics of um, contemporary technology. And also, um, I think one thing I kind of set myself to do was to try to, you know, this this sort of accelerationist politics, again, was the, the sort of hegemonic uh, politics of the, of the organized workers movement. Uh, but that's not to say that everyone was on board with that. So one, one thing I wanted to do in the book was try to find those people who at the time were marginal, but um, but to me had had actually gotten it better, gotten it more right than sort of the the kind of mainstream um, sort of socialist theoreticians, right? Um, and sort of resurrect that and show that there was another current uh, of of radical thinking about work and technology, um, and to, to try to recover that. It's interesting that you you frame the accelerationist or post-work or, you know, developmentalist, um, you know, ca capitalism as a necessary stage kind of theories as dominant because I've always identified with the post-work, post-capitalism um, kind of strain of left thought. And from this 
vantage point, it looks like the Luddism is what's dominant, <laughs> you know, that, and so I guess it's, but, you know, in my heart, I may be a, an accelerationist or whatever, but in my head, when, especially when I read your work, I see it as kind of like the two strands of DNA that they both complement. you know, that on the one hand, you have to look ahead and say, well, you know, where are we going to, where are we trying to head? And the other hand, you have to say, but at, in this moment, workers are rebelling. And this is, these are the kinds of resistances that we have to take into account. Yeah, you're, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I think you're right, right? And this is also kind of a gambit um, in the book, which was to say, um, if we're part of this sort of uh, nascent, uh, uh, but but significant um, socialist movement in the 21st century, you know, we need we're, we're not small we're not big enough to really accomplish our goals. How do we how do we grow right? How do we show that um, our perspectives help people understand their own problems and help them to um, move things in the in the way that meets their needs the best? And when I looked around, right, I would you know, talk to other uh, people in, in academia or in social movements about technology. I didn't, and, and I didn't always see that reflected in sort of people who didn't already identify in that way, uh, who were often uh, found technology to be alienating, to be frustrating, uh, to be uh, uh, irritating, or even to be, you know, something to be feared. Um, and I think, um, it's interesting when I started this book, a book, you know, sometimes takes a, a long time from 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 end to end. Uh, it, we, we were at, in what ended up being a kind of waning moment of sort of techno optimism. 2016 happens and, and social media almost turns on a dime from being this tool of activism and liberation and democracy to being a tool of right-wing authoritarianism, conspiracy theory, disinformation. Uh, and a lot of people with, uh, with the election of Trump and the, and the success of Brexit uh, really had to uh, reestablish and really uh, became quite disenchanted uh, with the potentials. And I think the overall tenor became much more uh, critical. I think at the same time, what you have is you have uh, the initial enthusiasm over these uh, sharing, where they were still sharing economy for a little while. So, so nice and cozy, but now we, we tend to call gig economy or platform labor uh, companies that uh, the abuses uh, and the problems of this business model were starting to become really, really apparent, right? The, 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 uh, precarity, um, the, the low regulations, the low pay of these jobs and the, the, the outrageous overvaluations of these companies were something that people were talking about all the time. So in that sense, I think, you know, we are in a more pessimistic uh, time uh, uh, around technology. And I think there's a way that um, we can take that that feeling and 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 add, you know, our uh, where what I see my role in as as someone with the kind of uh, intellectual training is to to take the things that I'm able to do and to to show say to people, you know, the way you feel is is your you know your right to feel that way, and and here's some some explanations for uh you know for for the sources behind that, some context for it, and maybe even you know some possibilities for how things could be different, right? I, I think that's I think that's really helpful. Um and I think your perspective becomes increasingly interesting with the rise of generative AI, which I imagine you could rewrite your book or write two additional chapters, particularly <laughs> on the emergence of 
you know, generative AI like ChatGPT and uh, Bard and so on and so forth. So I actually wonder, you know, what what does the emergence of generative AI uh, add to the kind of analysis that you've given? I, I imagine it's sort of just a, a, a kind of reassertion of the, the possibility that you're already imagining here. But but I wonder if this this changes or shapes the way you think about your own perspective. Yeah, I mean. Um, well, I'll just say that uh, I currently am on my department's uh, exam committee and we're responsible for evaluating uh, cases of plagiarism. So that, that's certainly, I have a lot of firsthand experience of this initial, uh, the, the, what I would say is the predominant use case of, of generative AI, which is forging papers, right? Um, I, 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 you know, um, I, I, with blockchain as well, I, I, I did try to hold out some sort of, I checked my own sort of initial skepticism to say, okay, let me look into it. There's people I respect who seem very big on it. Um, uh, and I'm trying to do that with, with AI as well. But I think what we have to keep in mind is that AI is controlled by large, uh, uh, companies, uh, with, it requires, uh, Dream amount of resources to pull together these technologies and to operate them, uh, and resources meaning not just money, but but also we're talking uh, <laughs> burning carbon, uh, which is something that we really need to take into account. And it's not clear to me what the benefits are to some of this. I mean, um, from what I can see, the main UK use cases uh, coming out of uh, something like ChatGPT, which mimics. Um, conversation uh, is, uh, yeah, you can forge a paper very quickly, uh, not very well, as it turns out. These these are not good papers, I would say. Um, I think it'll make things like um, uh, uh, spam and other forms of online scams easier to pull off, particularly if people are operating in a context that's not their native language. Uh, so I can anticipate um, our inboxes being full of all sorts of uh, tricks and phishing attacks and, and things like this, new ways to circumvent, uh, it'll be a kind of arms race, right? As there already has been between um, getting around the the sort of spam checkers and whether the spam checkers can, can kind of update themselves using the same means. Um, and and just general kind of low quality content, right? So I like to, I, I have a kind of weird hobby uh, which is I sometimes like to follow these kind of like hustle grind set, um, you know, optimize, uh, make money uh, kind of uh, people online. They, they have an influence. My students are interested in that stuff. Um, and, and I would look at what all their, what, you know, they were all big on, of course, they're big on the newest technology. They were big on, on crypto. Now they're big on AI. And this was all their like their ideas. Here's how. Here's five ways you can make money with AI. And it was always just like put forth like the this like really low quality blog content uh, with a bunch of like uh, you know mon monetized links. And it was just like this is what we need more of, I suppose. Right? We need right. more uh, bad websites. Right? I mean, you're, you're gonna we're gonna see. Um, what Cory Doctorow calls the inshitification of various platforms, because it's so easy to just load them with bad stuff, right? So you go on Amazon now, and you 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 don't know what the quality of these goods are, where they're made, if they're going to serve your purposes, right? And this is all because of the sort of um, 
the, the powers really uh, that that some of these these algorithmic tools and, and AI tools. I don't always like to use that term. Sometimes it's it's going away quickly. We used to be a little bit more uh, as scholars. We used to be, oh, it's machine learning. It's uh, we don't want to call this intelligence, but I, I don't know. I think that that ship has sailed. Um, but yeah, some of these. I mean, it's it's populating things with kind of like low quality content to sort of chase uh, tiny amounts of money, right? Um, and and I think it's you know for someone who um, you know, I mean, I, I did and still do love the internet. Um, that's my, my, my day job, right. Uh, is teaching about it. Uh, it's, it's really, it's really sad to me. Um, will but there be, just, yeah, go just, ahead. Just on this topic of ChatGPT, one of the things that's emerged in the last six months is stories of workers using ChatGPT to scam their boss by <laughs> replacing the work they were supposed to be doing with chat GPT work, or at least that's the way the boss might see it. Yeah. And isn't that an example of, you know, the, this is, I think, one of the issues with your book. It's like you're celebrating a classic monkey wrenching of the workplace. And then you get to the end and it's things like the right to repair or what you're recommending as the contemporary versions of that. And in this case, with ChatGPT, you can see workers using this tool precisely to resist in the workplace. Yeah, you've got um, one one case that I think is really interesting is, um, so um, when I was an undergraduate, social science research was like something you had to do for your, your as a student, right? You were in a large lecture hall for PolySci 101 and you'd, you know, go have to get 5% of your grade was filling out a survey for your for your professor's research. And then they don't do that anymore. They they move to Mechanical Turk. Well, now the Mechanical Turkers are using ChatGPT so they can actually pump out more of these surveys. Uh, and um, that's good for them, at least in the short term. And uh, But it's also uh, creating quite a problem for social science research. Um, sort of. um, you know, it's... Um, yeah, I, I think I think that's a really it's really interesting. I think that um, the other the you know the one thing I I want to kind of focus on um, and and the reason I end my book in a certain way is um, is is not just resistance but also um, feeling like um, that we have a kind of uh, an, an autonomous relationship to 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 technologies, a, a way that that we feel that we have a, a stake in how they can be used and what um, what they're what they're what they're being used for, right? Um, and even at the level of um, maybe thinking about uh, uh, how they're designed, um, which is you know it's not science fiction. These are there's experiments in the recent history uh, in recent history that to try to do these kinds of things. Um, and so that's I think. Um, one thing I'm interested in, I mean, you look at uh, forms of resistance in, say, platform labor, gig economy, um, and it's a lot, I was looking at some things today, it's a lot of things like people are organizing themselves in forums, uh, they're, they're, they're gossiping, they're, they're kind of, um, um, uh, you know, uh, giving each other sort of tips on navigating things, but it, it's very small scale. And I think... Um, one thing that I think with these with these large and really international platforms, um, we have to sort of scaffold this kind of low level resistance into uh, more organized forms, right? So that would mean I think going beyond kind of scamming your boss. No problem with scamming your boss, um, but I, I, you know, that's totally fine. But I, I think we also uh, politically have to think how do you scale, not just scale it up, uh, uh, but also. Um, 
put it on higher planes of organization. Um, one thing that also happened um, in the midst of this book coming out is I, I moved to Europe, which actually does regulate uh, technology in ways that um, all my colleagues are very, oh, it's not, it doesn't do anything. But from coming from a US perspective, um, there are actually quite significant differences uh, and they're much more cautious. Uh, so I guess Instagram is gonna roll out their Twitter knockoff uh, in, in the US to take advantage of um, the, um, you know, what Elon Musk has done to Twitter. Uh, but they're not allowed to do that in the, in the, in Europe yet. There's, there's no, they have to go through a, a much longer process. They have to make sure data is protected. And I, I think it would be, it's nice to think about how, um, we have some things already. We have some sort of, uh, apparatuses to, to, to regulate these things. Um, and, and how can we expand them? Can we develop them so that we can kind of get a, get a handle on these things to make sure that, um, that. We're not just um, hacking them, but we're also directing uh, their development towards uh, the uses that the vast majority of people think are good, not just a small uh, uh, number of, of, of tech shareholders. Yeah, I think I think I think that's a really excellent way of framing it, which is to say, you know, in some ways, I think, as you said at the beginning, a lot of people hear Luddite and they think technophobic. Whereas it seems like the perspective that you're you're presenting here is one in which we need to fundamentally reorient the kinds of value systems that are built within the kinds of technologies that we're developing. And of course, those are tied to economic and political conditions, right? Um, and you know, one you quote in the book, you quote um, the philosopher Nolan Gertz, who says that modern technologies appear to function not by helping us achieve our ends, but instead by determining ends for us by providing us with the ends that we must help technologies achieve, right? So yeah. ostensibly the values that are, are shaping these ends are ones that are driven by efficiency and capital accumulation and so on and so forth. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in the kinds of technologies that you imagine as alternatives to the kinds of efficiency and capital accumulation dominant forms of technologies, right? So um, there's a, a large tradition of thinkers like Murray Bookchin, who, you know, has prescribed a sort of technologies for life vision, which emphasizes, um, you know, uh, artistry and craftsmanship. Um, you know, you, you bring up William Morris and his opposition mm -hmm. to Bellamy in the book, um, who similarly had this very craftsmanship like artistic um, focus. Um, E.F. Schumacher has, you know, sort of the appropriate technology lens, which emphasizes values of beauty and health and sustainability. So I'm, I'm interested in thinking about what kinds of, you know, liberatory technological paradigm are necessary. What kinds of values do you think are needed that we need to be building into our, our technologies? Yeah, I mean, uh, one, one thing I think about is, um, I don't know if this quite gets at your question, but 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 it does it does I think speak to you know sometimes I, I do try to do this like okay so yes we can you know algorithms are essentially a form of tailorization and that and that's bad and we understand that but but is there is there something better here um, or, or some a, a different way to th to think about it I mean one one thing I think about a lot is um, uh, that goes to to some of the, some of this craft stuff but um, is the division of labor right um, like we we live in a in a world where uh, you know 
you, you have this sharp division of labor and a very small percentage of people have sort of uh, dignified forms of work and the vast majority of people are consigned to forms of drudgery and, and in many cases, pointless drudgery. Um, I think there is a way that, that the ability to sort of uh, 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 disaggregate, taskify, and then re-aggregate that, that uh, algorithmic systems seem to be quite good at, quite nimble with, might be a way to think about uh, how would you have a different approach to the division of labor, right? Rather than have a job, right? Rather than, uh, for instance, um, uh, trash collection being a job and like some people, that's all they have to do. You know, everyone has to work for a wage and what they get, what they do for a wage is they handle our trash. Um, it's not a job that, that is... Uh, without skill, but, uh, but it's also, uh, you know, uh, tends to be fairly replaceable. So is there a way that we could say, you know, maybe uh, we could organize because these things still need to be organized. We still need to have time scales. We still need to have equipment in the right places, right? Um, but do we need to have these people who are consigned to only do that? What if this is something that, um, you know, that, that I had a shift every two weeks where I spent a, a couple hours in my neighborhood, you know, operating the truck, which I could be taught to do. Um, I, I always see people posting things online about how they treat service workers very well because they were service workers at one point in their life. And I'm like, well, what if instead of everyone having worked in retail for three years when they're a young person, what if, you know, for six months you fixed bikes? Uh, for six months you, uh, you know, were part of this like municipal uh, uh, sort of gardening or tree task, for, you know, develop those skills, right? And, 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 and I think this is actually something that digital technology would be able to, to help organize. Uh, and in doing so, right, we develop skills not uh, as a craftsperson would, but skills in the sense that we understand how the world around us works. And we're better able to intervene and to make informed decisions uh, over how those things work. I mean, I think this is um, a, a real sort of uh, problem. This is something people have talked about um, in the US is that that uh, especially post-pandemic, people have like lost social skills. Um, they relate to each other in much cruder ways, right? I don't know what the causes there are. It's a kind of more diffuse complaint, but but I think these are these are things that, that I kind of think about. That maybe there there is something with using this kind of algorithmic systems to say, well, all right, like let's. Uh, first, I mean, first of all, let's figure out what what's what's all the what are the bullshit jobs that no one needs to be doing, uh, and then let's uh, can we have a more equitable uh, division of work and and one that's not just oh now I have to do garbage too that that's not so great for me because I wasn't doing that before but one that says now I know how the sanitation systems in my neighborhood work I see oh there's a room for improvement I I, I met my neighbor he agrees with me you know these kinds of things that I think would make for like um, a much more a richer, more satisfying experience than than one that's based around, you know, uh, making more money. I, I have a question that's a bit of a digression, so I'll save it, but about <laughs> how higher education is bifurcating society, which gets to your point mm -hmm. about the kind of skill differentiation sure. and whether the professional managerial class is, in fact, the agent of capitalist rationalization or not. But um, so I'll just put that aside for a second. But, sure. Um, uh, when I was thinking about your work, I was thinking about uh, uh, Marxist historiographers' approach to, for instance, primitive revolutionaries, bandits, you know, mm -hmm. um, and how that's different from like Piven and Cloward's approach to welfare rights activism. The the primitive bandit says, "Look, you can acknowledge and appreciate and even celebrate." historical um, signs of worker resistance that took forms that we would not recommend today, 
you know, that, you know, that are not in fact politically progressive, but we understand that that's what they had available to them. Versus Piven and Cloward who see a kind of integration of um, direct action as a as a political strategy with a political with a political agenda, are you headed more in the second direction? Um, do you, do you I, think I, that acts of worker resistance, like my son is a union yeah. organizer, and when I talked to him about your book last night, he just made a face, and because he used to, he he deals with workers a lot who are like so pissed off. He's mm-hmm. he's a nurse union organizer, so. You don't want people monkey wrenching in the hospital, right? <laughs> so, but you know, just any kind of individualist resistance, he has to turn into collective action. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, okay. I just I understand your question. Yeah, I would say that the the hospitals are actually a, a, a front in the war against the robots right now. Um, which I would be interested to know uh, uh, if your son has any uh, uh, dealings with that. I mean, um, there's there's for the kinds of uh, large-scale changes that I think we'll need um, will require a kind of uh, militants, meaning uh, a, a sort of not being afraid to break the rules in and and the sharpening of antagonisms in some places. I I don't say that in an unqualified way. I think. Um, uh, you know, any, anything that's done uh, should be done strategically, especially things that are, are risky. Uh, but um, uh, so so uh, I think that this is also my kind of interest in um, in, in in machine breaking is that um, uh, it also when the Luddites are a great example of this produced kinds of forms of militant solidarity that were, uh, you know, that were more developed, right, than than what had come previously. Um, that said, I mean, I, I totally understand your son. You know, he's he's trying. He's got a different type type of strategy, right? He's got something he's working on, and these people seem seem like wreckers, or or, or they're not on board um, with the program. Um, I think it's also fair to say um, that writing the book in a U.S. context, it seems a lot less hopeful that. Um, sort of reformist methods will uh, achieve significant results in, in the near future. I support unionization. Uh, I, I think workers should be in unions. I think unions should be uh, powerful political actors. Um, the reality is it's they're, they're um, as, as weak as they've ever been, um, not without some, some uh, encouraging signs, but um, it's still a, a long ways off. And one debate about growing that movement is, um, well, maybe if they were, um, uh, maybe in some situations more confrontational, that uh, actually earns them some some sort of respect and participation. I mean, I'd, I'm not going to, I'm not a labor sociologist, so I'm going to uh, sort of remove myself from that debate. I would also say, again, this is a change in my, I've had some changes in perspective since moving to Europe. I wouldn't call it social democracy, but it's certainly a much more robust welfare state. Um, and it does actually, uh, it does seem to have meaningful differences in in how people perceive the the possible political possibilities and how I perceive political possibilities. Um, uh, I think that you know a lot of the movements, a lot of the even rebellions that we've seen in the U.S. Uh, might not have taken the forms they've taken uh, if you had some of the 
labor market protections and benefits uh, and, and other forms of regulations that you have in Europe. Um, that said, we can look to France, which has very robust welfare state, even by European standards, and see that, well, there's some things that are quite lacking there. Um, but I, I, I mean, the question is, what would it take for the US system right now to get to even you know where I am now, which is the Netherlands? Uh, definitely, I would say, one of the more neoliberal uh, uh, EU countries, although a, a wealthier one uh, as well. Uh, what would it take to get to that system where, you know, 50% tax rate? I don't know. <laughs> um, I think it could, it, it would take a, quite a lot of confrontation. Uh, uh, you know, you have like bizarre forms of hostility now to um, the 15 minute city idea, which seems to so anodyne, right? Like, you, you just walk to work, walk, walk to your children's school. Um, you don't have to drive everywhere. And now has become turned into like this uh, in insidious uh, woke uh, conspiracy uh, that now people will literally be hostile to, to the idea of, of being able to walk places. Uh, so it's, it's going to take, um, uh, you know, uh, I think it's going to take something quite confrontational uh, uh, to, to, to kind of move, move in that, direction and i was interested um in exploring that um i'm as far as how that how different strategies conflict i think is um it's a it's a it's a great a great question a super pertinent question um it's very hard for me to answer in the abstract right but i think in any situation right it should be something that that we who are interested in 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 workplace politics will, has to confront and be very serious about yeah i i take your point there and i think you know there is a there is a kind of <laughs> there's a kind of lack of hope in the U.S. context, in particular yeah. because of the most recent um, Supreme Court ruling, Glacier Northwest versus Teamsters, right, yeah. which was focused on this, pretty much this exact issue of breaking things at work, um, uh, although maybe not as intentional as um, maybe we're discussing here, but you know. Um, you know, now it's potentially possible for corporations to sue unions for economic damages related to work stoppages. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to that extent, it is considerably more dire in the United States. Um, but perhaps also to your point, that also represents a kind of need for greater levels of militancy because those kinds of things are are, are not um, are not legally protected. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's an argument to be made that the the U.S. Constitution is uh, sort of uh, a, a machine to oppose us, right? right. Uh, and and it's working very effectively. So even if you know we have uh, changes at the level of democracy that we have that we what we do have in the U.S., and you just have these these judges that that overturn it on these uh, flimsiest of pretenses, right? And that right. are completely owned by billionaires. So how do you change that, right? Well, I think change a, a a new constitution is not an easy thing it's like uh, the constitution is quite quite fetishized in the united states uh, uh particularly on the but not exclusively uh, on the right so um so you you'll, you're going to get some pushback right and i think you know the other thing to consider is even if you don't get pushback uh even if you don't push uh, you might still get pushback right people are uh, uh, radicalizing uh, you know in in quite alarming ways and joe biden who's just like sort of you know for for for, for someone like me is like oh is doddering centrist politician right um uh, is is for people on the right like a raving communist who's going to destroy their lives uh it's it's um 
uh, you know, th these are these are you know uh, concerning. I'm not saying you you meet fire with fire, but you 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 know some some forms of preparation will would be useful. Sure. You know, so in some ways, this next question is is thinking about. It doesn't necessarily need to be the opposite, but maybe a, a corollary to this idea of breaking things at work. But you know, part of the part of the hacker ethos is not simply. Uh, forms of destruction, but also forms of creation and building of alternatives, and really, in many ways, a kind of appropriation of capitalist technologies for their use elsewhere. So we can think about, you know, free and open software movements. Um, you know, even we talked a bit earlier about, you know, some of the promises of of blockchain from, you know, uh, a kind of libertarian uh, perspective. But there are movements around the world that adopt socialist principles and use these kinds of technologies to build kind of um, almost like interstitial uh, movements, right? A kind of prefigurative movement uh, to use like some Eric Olin Wright terminology about yeah. interstitial revolutions. Um, so I wonder too, what, what role you see those kind of interstitial movements playing and whether or not something like those kinds of alternatives are radical enough, or if you really think, as the title of your book suggests, breaking things at work really needs to be a kind of dominant strategy. Yeah, I mean, I I like these kinds of experiments. I think sometimes they they do provide a really uh, useful experience for the people who are part of those cultures uh, to to shape their values in in in, in more progressive ways. Um, I think they provide nice use cases for how things could be different. Um, I think that, um, but I do think that uh, um, it, it's not always, you know, uh, to, I have this kind of like very simplistic sort of um, slogan that I came up with, which is that um, socialism is about banning things. <laughs> it's about, <laughs> it's about saying you can't do that anymore. Uh, so, um, and, and, and of course it's simplistic, right? Uh, it's, you know, oh, we, we're cutting off the future or something like that, but, but it's, a, it's a polemical meaning it's, it's supposed to sort of clarify, um, by in, in, in its bluntness. So, so, so I think that to me is, is, um, is what I'm, what I'm interested in. Like, yes. Okay. Maybe there, there were, I followed these like more like attempts at more sort of progressive sort of blockchain cultures. At the end of the day though, I think that all that stuff should be banned. Like you can't run through that much. You can't just be allowed to burn this much carbon that for something that's like 99% offshore gambling. Um, it's just, we just have to say, no, you can't do it. Um, and, and I think, yes, it's a, that's blunt, right? Uh, but uh, I think most of the problems we have with technology would be solved um, uh, through um, taking the most abusive ones off the table, saying you can't introduce um, these new forms of uh, uh, sort of biometric surveillance in an Amazon warehouse. You know, you can't, um, introduce these uh, these new sort of algorithmic uh, sort of patterns in um, hotel work, right? Like you just you can't do these things, and and that is you know will very quickly create you know create uh, Im improve things. I think um, so. So um, I tend to uh, increasingly yeah think about these larger scale things. I, I have to say, I mean. Um, 
the other problem with some of the interstitial stuff is that it, it gets comfortable uh, in working in the system. Um, and I think this is this is actually uh, I, I'm very positive about uh, uh, free and open source software in general uh, in the book and, and other things I've written in, in my teaching, et cetera. Students are often quite fascinated to learn about it. Um, but it's also got got quite comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, and that, yeah. that's a good uh, lead into my side Great. note that I'm interested in your thoughts about. Um, from the GLAS's new class to Aaron Reich's professional managerial class, there's been this notion that people in my class, I am a card-carrying member of a professional managerial class, that we one of our key functions is implementing administrative rationalization and worker um, control in the structure, either the administrative structures or the capitalist, you know, for profit structures, wherever we are, that's one of our roles. And one of the reasons why there's been this growing class divide politically and manifest in populism between college educated workers and non-college educated is not just because of our differential class advantages in terms of wealth and things like that, but also because we have this um, regulative role towards the working class. Is that part of your perspective as well, that um, the re this resistance has this intra-class dimension? Um, I mean, uh, I think that I, I don't view it in terms of this, um, the, the professional middle class. Uh, I mean, for, for um, uh, there's a kind of, I think it's often operationalized in a sort of like guilty conscience kind of way among intellectuals. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I want to be down with the workers and, uh, but I, I wear a tie to work or, you know, I, I have a salary and, um, uh, and it is true, right, that um, that education, including political education, was done through worker through uh, institutions more organically tied to the workers' movement, right? Um, you have brilliant sort of uh, Marxist theoreticians who who didn't go to university, right? Who 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 came up through socialist parties, through through uh, working in unions, right? Um, it, it seems like we don't have as much of that. That universities sort of have dominated um, intellectual production, but I think at the same time, universities have also are also much more massive um, than they once were. Um, I guess my perspective on it is that. Um, uh, I think that a lot of debates about professional middle class and their toxic influence um, beyond being a sort of uh, guilty conscience of, of, of left-wing intellectuals is also people just disagree on political issues uh, and uh, express them through uh, this is this is something that I, I was sort of at the end of one of my uh, uh, sort of projects with viewpoint magazine we started talking about this is becoming big in the u.s left that people would uh, express political differences like we just disagree on what the situation is and the best way to go forward but instead of saying that we say well it's because you're in the wrong class or you have a wrong identity you're speaking out of place um and and i and it and i think that um ended up having some really uh and continues to have some kind of toxic effects within sort of like activist cultures, right? Uh, I would not that we should table our differences and pretend that we're all the same, but I think that sometimes these conversations are better better uh, done at the level of of sort of, you know, what are our goals and how are we going to get there and do we agree and why not? Um, 
I think um, universities are also places of tremendous resources. I know many uh, people in university who <laughs> their main goal is, you know, other than doing their job is how do you channel these resources beyond the, the boundaries of the university, right? And including people who kind of run with that to the point of like, how do we completely um, reconstruct the university in, in that kind of interest, right? Into those ends. I think that's, those are very, Uh, interesting um, ways to think about things. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that um, at its best, right, in people like the three of us uh, can try to to say something like we we have this uh, advantage, this, this thing that that mo most people don't have. We just have the time to read things and and to research them and write them, and and do our best. Uh, this is a you know I always think of the Stuart Hall. You know, there's no politics without guarantees. There's no guarantee that, that it'll happen, but try to produce things that we see as useful and relevant to the problems that we're detecting and in ways that, um, are, that, that are accessible and useful beyond, you know, sort of academic journals, right? Um, and and I, I do see a lot of that. Maybe we need to do more. Um, we could always be doing more, um, but I also think that um, there's ways to sort of, uh, you know, At a certain point, I, I, I stop the flagellating and say, it's, you know, it's time to, time to do the work, right? Um, time to do the things that, um, you know, if the, the, the workers want to see me, you know, um, pull my hair out and, 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 and feel very guilty, or do they want me to, to do something that might help them? I don't know. I would say that I would, I would presume the latter, right? Um, so, so um, and, and I would also say that There's also a way that, uh, you know, un yes, the, the sort of monopolization um, of universities on, on intellectual production, the way that um, uh, the monopolization of, of left wing intellectual production uh, in many ways through universities uh, has problems. At the same time, I, you know, the universities were also the place where those things were preserved in, in times that are quite dark. Uh, Uh, when there was really very little else. Uh, so I think there's a way that, you know, um, it's easy to, to, to forget that if you were, uh, you know, if you wanted to preserve or, or further Marxist theory in the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, the university was one of the only places you could do that. I see people complain about, oh, you know, really uh, uh, rag on academics, and yet the things they like to read are... Uh, you know, radical text translated by precarious grad students, you know, so it, it's, a, I think it's a much more complicated situation. And, and I, I tend to, I tend to be defensive, I would say, of, of academics in the university. Defensive, but not uncritical. Uh, and of course, that can be attributed to my identity and my social position uh, in a university. Uh, but I, I would like to think that it's not um, reductive to that. <laughs> You know, I think that's a really healthy balance to be able to strike too. And I, and I also think there's a, to a certain extent, we also, if it is our aim as academics to get out of the ivory tower and be doing work that is effectual, we also have a responsibility to try and reshape educational institutions that require us to not do that, <laughs> require us instead to publish in journals that 10 people will read rather than being rewarded for the kind of work that will have real world impacts, right? I, I think we're going to also live through a very interesting, we already are, right? I mean, 
I know, I know you're uh, <laughs> in a postdoc, so you're a precarious uh, academic yourself. So I don't, but I'm sure this is nothing you don't know, right? Most people are not going to 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 remain in the academy throughout their careers. So we will have, and this is something that has happened in in past moments in in in, in uh, U.S. history, right? Uh, it, it, one way that people understand the the big rebellions of the 1960s was you had a massification of higher education. You had people who had who in a pre prior generation would have had no connection to the universities suddenly that they're all there and massive social changes uh, are produced through not just you know going to class and reading books but but the, all the aspects of, of this kind of uh, very uh, uh, changed intellectual culture where the working class enters the universities what we're going to see now is we're going to see the, the universities expelling uh, the the very people it's training, uh, and where are they ending up? They're ending up in the working class. They're ending up in school teachers. They're ending up uh, uh, in healthcare institutions. They're researchers uh, in labor organizations and activist organizations, right? So this uh, these skills and these uh, intellectual capacities are uh, are diffusing in different ways, and I, I think that's also something that we should. Uh, pay attention to, right? And and could be important, as important as the idea that anyone with a degree is uh, is some sort of uh, gatekeeper for for authentic workers, right? Um, I, I I don't I, I think that's quite reductive, and and I think that um, I I'm really interested in in some ways excited. I mean, it's also very heartbreaking, right? To 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 watch your um, the people closest to you, the people you've been around, you. you uh, suffer uh, in many ways because of the way that universities work um, today, but to also say, wow, that would be so interesting now that we have these people who spent five years reading Marxism and now they're uh, teaching history in a public school, uh, you know, or, or doing these other things, right? It, we're going to really have a, a very different landscape for, for some of these things. And, and there's, there's, I think, potentials there. Uh, I was just making me think about the Protel cult. Is that what they were called? Maxim Gorky, you mentioned in your book, you know, the notion that one of the conflicts that they had with Lenin was they thought that worker and one of the conflicts Lenin had with his wife when he, they first got together was that uh, she was committed to the idea of worker education as mm -hmm. being central to all of this yeah. and the Protel cult people as well. And mm -hmm. Lenin was like, no, no intellectual vanguard take care of all this you don't have to worry about your little heads about it you know so i i do think that that's another one of the traditions here is whether we the degree to which we think that the people communing with pure reason and just digesting it into scientific socialism uh, versus actually educating everybody yeah i mean to me what i try to do in the book is look for, i is to i have kind of two uh threads through the book. One is a sort of labor history of sort of social struggles against technologies, particularly in the workplace, but also beyond it. Um, and the other is the sort of um, the, the, the intellectual thread of Marxism that runs through that. And my argument is that you have oftentimes it's intellectuals who are closer to those struggles who actually come up with that, who, who are actually tend to say, Technology is not uh, is not some autonomous force. It's leading us to a brighter future. It's it's much more complicated. It's actually an antagonist in many ways. And I and I think that the, the, those insights are derived from their 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 proximity uh, uh, to social struggles, whether they're worker intellectuals themselves, whether they're sort of declassade uh, sort of academics or 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 some other kind of of of, of category or figure. And and I think the 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 main 
um, prerogative that I have in the book is that we have to pay attention to the content of struggles. That, that should be our first sort of inclination when we conduct an analysis, right? You say, where are these struggles? What are they struggling over? You know, who is it? And what are their goals? And then once we've got that, once we're taking that very seriously, then we can, you know, we start maybe theorizing, contextualizing, doing all those those things that we like to do. Um, and I think the mistake sometimes is to, to come at it the other way, like, oh, hey, hey, worker, we have this great framework for you. Um, start thinking about yourself in this way. Um, to me, I would rather be, I would rather have it be the other way. I would rather be intellectually challenged by by developments on the ground, right? I mean, to me, that's that's. A healthier way to do things. It's a, it's a, it's a, I think a, a more politically productive way to do things, um, and and uh, and and yes, uh, the 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 edu I mean the the goal of of, of sort of socialist politics, right? Is it that that the workers can govern themselves, right? You don't need a a, a, a caste or a hierarchy or uh, a, a, you know a, a, you know some other structure that that does things on their behalf. And and yes, I think that would require education, a very different education that looked very different than than many of the forms of education we have today. Um, but but also, this forms of education we have today are quite unsatisfying to many people in many ways. Um, and I think. There's a lot of really interesting experiments um, on how that could look. Um, I always uh, uh, there's this moment in um, uh, I don't know if you've seen this is like long film called La Commune. Uh, it's like eight hour uh, a film about the Paris Commune. Uh, I think it's all on YouTube. It, it was a few years ago when I watched it, but um, uh, it has one of the uh, non-professional actors. It's like one of those kind of experiments in that way, but you have one of the, 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 the communards, uh, a woman saying, you know, why, why we want poetry too. <laughs> why, why do we have to just talk about bread, you know,